Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible study, we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 12. The apostles demonstrate some mighty miracles. And first, we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time to study your word and to be led by Mark uh, his diligent efforts to prepare for these studies are greatly appreciated by us, and we thank you for him, and we thank you for this time together that we might learn more about you and your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good evening, amen. Mark. Good evening. It's great to be back with everyone after a small gap here due to my work schedule but we have been uh, going through the book of Acts, seeing how it is systematically recording the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel and is also documenting the reformation or reconstitution of Israel. We ended up at verse 11 last time, and this is the first time that the word translated church appears in the book of Acts. Um, this is referring in verse 11 to the abrupt deaths of Ananias and Sapphira which we discussed in the last lesson it said great fear came upon the whole church this is a really bad translation I think it comes from the Scottish word kirk which refers I guess to a church building but the Greek word of course is ekklesia which means a called out assembly William Tyndale's original English translation uses the same word in both the Old and New Testament of congregation. Uh, assembly would also be a good uh, translation. Congregation is only used in religious terms. In other words, you don't hear many people in everyday conversation use the word congregation unless they're talking about their church. So I don't, I don't like to use those words that have achieved an exclusively religious connotation because they bring a lot of baggage when you're talking to someone without that background. A community of believers would really be the best way to translate this word, the community of believers. But the reason this is important and the reason that it's a tragedy that this word church is used in the New Testament is because it's using a different word to translate the same idea of God's 
called out people. And hmm. what we are really seeing is that the people of God are changing throughout the book of Acts. There's a flux as they are being called out of Judaism, the temple religion that was practiced there in Judea. There's there's kind of a 40-year transitional period that has just started here. And the Judeans in these early chapters of Acts, and we'll see more here in chapter 5, are being called out of their old religion. And the examples of Abraham who picked up and left the only thing he'd ever known, the only country he'd ever known, uh, this will be uh, used. Uh, and more specifically, the Exodus, where Moses pulled the Israelites out of Egypt, the only country they'd ever known, the only culture they'd ever known. He called them out and led them out into a wilderness. And it was it had to be like this for a Judean to leave the only religion they had known, not only from birth, but passed down generation after generation after generation in all their families. They're being called out. And there is a new people of God that has been formed at the cross and or conceived at the cross, born on the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And all of this is in fulfillment of Christ's commission to the disciples, uh, which we found at the end of Luke. And then we see it again in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is a summation of the book of Acts. These early chapters show how they are completing their task in Jerusalem and in all of Judea. In, in chapter 5 here, we will see how this is certainly expanded beyond Jerusalem to all of Judea proper. So it's happening exactly as Christ commanded. Interestingly, what we do not find in the book of Acts, what we have not seen thus far, what we do not see in chapter 5, is any apology that God failed to set up the kingdom as he had intended to do, or that the crucifixion represented a failure of God's plan. And we would expect if our dispensationalist friends are correct or have any basis whatsoever to their theology or method of interpreting the Bible, we would find apology after apology after apology and excuse and uh, condolences to the Judean people for God's plan failing miserably, which, of course, is the foundation for dispensationalist eschatology and theology and everything else, and even politics, sadly, here in the 21st century. So that's kind of uh, where we're, we are up to this point, beginning in verse 12. Let's let's go ahead and read verses 12 through 16 at this time. Before we start that, Mark, I want to make a point that kind of substantiates what you said there. In our Sunday school class lesson just this past week, the teacher asked, just kind of by a show of hands, how many believed that the kingdom of God was here now or if it was in the future. And according to his count, I couldn't see all the people who raised their hand. He said, well, it was about 
50% thought that the kingdom was now, and 50% thought it was in the future. Oh, that is very interesting. And, of course, you attend a what we would call a dispensationalist church, do you not? Yes, it, it certainly leans that way. Yeah, I would say it definitely leans towards the dispensational Dispensational side, view. Yes. So th- this is the great tragedy of our day. Christians don't know or aren't sure that the kingdom is here. <laughs> and so to unleash the power, the spiritual power that God intends to channel through the believer to rule on the earth with a rod of iron, as as has been foretold, and that is certainly here now, no one has enough confidence to do that. And we see the tragic results of the values that we find in the Bible being trod underfoot, and no one, not one decent man is standing in the breach, really, as far as the, as the country is concerned, to prevent this spiral into moral no, that's not strong enough. Uh, <laughs> this collapse into the moral abyss and the complete destruction of any semblance of morality uh, in this country. And I believe that goes back to that exact question that do we think the kingdom is here with power or is it just kind of here in a shadow form? Uh, do we really have to wait till we get to heaven to see it or do we have to wait for this? physical kingdom to be established in physical Jerusalem, you know, no one really knows. And, and again, this is a great tragedy well, of our time. Well, the, the, the Zionists, uh, Mark, don't they, they think it's when he's going to come back, <laughs> the quote-unquote second coming. The, yes, and, and that's all premillennialists, uh, all, right. all types of premillennialists, not the Zionists, the dispensationalists, and even the classical premillennialists. So, they all right. miss the, the boat, uh, as we'll see here. And it's all, it's just paragraph after paragraph throughout the book of Acts revealing the power of God's kingdom on earth at that time and right. should be at this time as well. Right. All right, well, good thoughts. Let's uh, go ahead then and begin with uh, verses 12 through 16. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders occurred among the people. By mutual agreement, they used to meet in Solomon's portico. No one else dared to join them, despite the fact that the people held them in great esteem. Nevertheless, more and more believers, men and women in great numbers, were continually added to the Lord. The people carried the sick into the streets, and laid them on cots and mattresses, so that when Peter passed by, at least his shadow might fall on one or another of them. Crowds from the towns around Jerusalem would gather, too, bringing their sick and those who were troubled by unclean spirits, all of whom were cured. Excellent, Leslie. Thank you. Now, Notice a little comment we might not have paid attention to, that in verse 16, the multitude from the cities round about Jerusalem were bringing all of their sick into the city. So this is a direct fulfillment of Christ's command in Acts 1 that we read, to go to Jerusalem first and then to all Judea. You see, the the sphere of influence is expanding. And we were already up to about 10,000 believers 
in the new family of God as of Acts 3. And so here in this paragraph, we find that many more were added, multitudes, both of men and women. So, I mean, we're we're into tens of thousands of Judeans who are participating in the new exodus, who are leaving. And as we'll see, they're not, they haven't abandoned the old ways completely, but they are cleaving to the new way. And we'll see, uh, we'll see this here as we continue on in, in chapter 5. The center of activity is in Solomon's porch on Herod's Temple Mount. And again, this was a, this was a monumental structure that stretched uh, across, I believe, the east side of Herod's Temple Mount, which was huge and remains to this day. You can basically see how large it is in pictures of the of the Temple Mount today. And it was an open colonnade, and people could gather there, and they could extend out into the unroofed area of the uh, courtyard of the Gentiles, which was the outermost courtyard up there on Herod's Temple Mount. So uh, huge numbers of people could congregate up there, and they were teaching and discussing and, and uh, growing, learning about Jesus Christ and and his kingdom and so on up there on the Temple Mount. Now, verse 13 talks about of the rest, no man dared to join themselves to them, but the people magnified them. I believe this is the same contrast that we find throughout the Gospel of John, where the word Judean sometimes refers to all uh, Judean people everywhere. Sometimes it refers to those who live in Judea proper, and most often it refers to the leaders of, of Judea. And I believe that in this case, of the rest, the remainder, meaning those who weren't of the common people. You see, that the signs and wonders are being worked among the common people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. The leadership was staying aloof at, at this point. And there was probably some fear and trepidation as a result of the sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. So uh, the the true believers were not really put off by this, but people on the fringes, people in the leadership, they were avoiding this growing family with great effort here. Nevertheless, right after this exclusion of verse 13, we learn that the believers were being added in multitudes of men and women. And then we see details of the healings that took place in verses 15. And this is exceeding Anything that we read about when Christ walked through Judea or Galilee, he healed, he raised people from the dead in a very limited scope. But now we're seeing a demonstration that he's acting through his newly enlarged body, the the collective body of believers that now are his hands and his feet. And, of course, he's able to accomplish more through this large body than he was able to accomplish in his physical body his main effort those three years were to cultivate and train so to speak this core group of 120 who who started this huge new movement here uh, after Pentecost and we're seeing that as Peter came by even if his shadow crossed over these sick people by implication here 
it helped them out, we're told that everyone was healed who was brought to them, all manners of illnesses and those who were vexed with unclean spirits, which, of course, had had become rampant in this area, I believe, specifically at this time to demonstrate the power of God. And, and they were, in their own way, signs of impending doom uh, upon Judea. But we'll have more opportunity later in Acts to discuss that topic. Any other comments or thoughts here on this paragraph? Leslie? Yes. Our pastor's sermon this week was to point out that Jesus could have done miracle after miracle and miracle after miracle, but that wasn't his purpose for being on earth. It was to, you know, die on the cross for our sins. And so he had a mission. The rest of us here, greater things will we do than he did. And and this is definitely evident here with Peter. And it also says here, all of whom were cured under Peter. And I'm thinking, you know, that's why Peter's bones were so valuable because people couldn't get enough of him even when he was alive. But Peter's bones were, were passed from place to place to place to hide them because people still valued Peter. <laughs> he, they they still claim to be healed, you know, from, from being around the relics. So, Well, yes, I, I don't know about the effects of the relics, but... We do know that the that the love of the people for Peter will have very strong impact on what's going to happen here in the rest of chapter 5. I mean, just imagine if your family had been plagued with disease and illness and you spent fortune on doctors to no avail, and all of a sudden, for free, there was a group of men who cleaned up every illness in your family and it didn't cost you a penny and then you found out that the political leaders of your country were trying to kill these men that had just wiped out disease in your village i mean what response do you think that yeah. would bring <laughs> so hold that thought while we read sure and this is a long paragraph let's break it in half here let's just read uh, 17 down through 25 please the high priest and all his supporters, that is, the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and threw them into the public jail. During the night, however, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the jail, led them forth, and said, Go out now and take your place in the temple precincts and preach to the people all about this new life. Accordingly, they went into the temple at dawn and resumed their teaching when the high priest and his supporters arrived they convoked the Sanhedrin the full council of the elders of Israel they sent word to the jail that the prisoners were to be brought in but when the temple guard got to the jail they could not find them and hurried back with the report we found the jail securely locked and the guards at their posts outside the gates, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the high priest did not know what to make of the affair. Someone came up to them, pointing out, Look there! Those men you put in jail are standing over there in the temple, teaching the people. All right, thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, 
we learned that the high priest was a Sadducee, which we had clues to before. The Sadducees were a tiny minority of the Judean people, but they comprised the wealthiest families. And the high priest office had been up to, for sale to the highest bidder uh, ever since the Romans had control, controlled uh, the area. And so the Sadducees had controlled the uh, the high priest's office and many of the priestly families because they were so wealthy, but they were also uh, of the Sadducee belief. And they denied really the supernatural in many ways. They denied that there were any spirit beings. They denied any resurrection. When you were dead, you were dead all over. They denied angels, messengers, and they denied all of the oral traditions that the Pharisees followed. So they they were, I guess, minimalists in their religious views. But here, after enjoying a power and influence for many generations, they're seeing this, this group growing under their nose at a terrifying rate. And they were filled with jealousy. And so they arrested the apostles and put them in jail. In chapter 3, we saw where Peter and John were arrested right there on the Temple Mount as well. And they were threatened and released. In this case, angel is another one of these words that has acquired a, an exclusively religious meaning. It would be better translated messenger because that's the exact meaning of the Greek word there in verse 19. Angelos is the Greek word, and it just it's the Greek word for messenger. And it can mean a human, or it can mean a spiritual being who serves as a messenger. In this case, we're not told, but God sent a messenger to open the prison doors. Whoever this messenger was could speak, because the, the messenger told them to go right back to the temple courtyard where they had been before and continue speaking the words of this life. And again, this is not a message of defeat. This is not a message of apology. This is not a message of weakness, which is what we would expect if the dispensational view were correct or had any merit or basis to it whatsoever. This is a message of victory. These are people that are being freed from the civil authorities. And what would most people do if they were broken out of jail? Hide. Exactly. They would run. They would hide. They would flee. And these men go right back to doing what they were before. I mean, is this a slap in the face of the political authorities or what? This is a message of victory. This is a message of confidence. This is a message of power. It is not a message of defeat or postponement or apology at all. And the the words are called this life. This is the newness of life. This is the new creation that was again conceived on the cross, born at Pentecost, and is growing rapidly amongst the Judean people. This is spiritual life. This is being present with God for eternity, something that the law of Moses could not even begin to offer. This is something newer and greater than than anything the law could offer. And, and again, this this makes the efforts of our 
dispensational and Zionist friends to bring back the law of Moses, it would be laughable if it weren't so serious and if it didn't have such a high human cost. But what a joke to, to go back to death when you have life with power delivered right here in the first century, just, you know, days after Christ's death on the cross, which was a victory, not a defeat. And so the apostles are absolutely brimming with confidence. They don't question the message. They don't challenge it. They confidently go right back in at dawn to the courtyard near Solomon's porch, presumably, and kept right on teaching. <laughs> so meanwhile, the, the Sanhedrin, the Council of Judea, uh, they had their own special little meeting house that was right next to the Temple Mount. There was kind of a special bridge that connected the Temple Courtyard to this uh, little house of meeting just to the west and south of the Temple. And, uh, you know, they're convening, having no clue <laughs> that the prisoners not only have escaped, but have have gone back to doing exactly what they were arrested for. The, the entire Sanhedrin there is assembled, and once they've gotten together, they send for the prisoners. And the temple They weren't police, there on cue, were they? No, not at all. <laughs> so, again, you know, if we remember the prophecy of Daniel that, in the, in the days of those kings, this little stone will become a rock that will crush the kingdoms of the earth. And, you know, we're seeing this. We're seeing that the power of God's kingdom is far greater than any civil government. And, the, and they basically are, you know, treating the civil government with utter contempt because they are working against God's purposes. And... They couldn't find the prisoners, and the the doors are all bolted. The guards are still standing there because they have no clue that anything is wrong. When we opened everything up, there were no prisoners inside. And so, they're, I mean, everyone, everyone is perplexed about this, and they're worried what this would lead to. You know, they've already seen this small group grow before their very eyes in just a very short time to tens of thousands of their countrymen and what's going on here they just can't they just can't accept <laughs> accept what's happening here and and bow to the power of God that's being demonstrated forcefully in their face day after day after day and about this time a messenger runs in and lets them know that the man that that you had uh, arrested are right back in the temple teaching the people just as if nothing happened. <laughs> so the captain and the chief officers of the temple police go back over there and request the presence of the apostles at the Sanhedrin's council meeting. And they're very careful not to use any mean words or, or brandish any weapons because they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. As I said, if everyone that you knew had been healed of every ailment disease that they had and your political leaders are threatening to do something bad to these people i mean that in and of itself even without the spiritual implications would would cause a mass riot right away so they're very careful you know on what they do oh and i've, I've jumped past our reading so let's uh let's read 26 really? down through 32 here 
At that, the captain went off with the guard and brought them in, but without any show of force for fear of being stoned by the crowd. When they had led them in and made them stand before the Sanhedrin, the high priest began the interrogation in this way. We gave you strict orders not to teach about that name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us responsible for that man's blood. To this Peter and the apostles replied, Better for us to obey God than men. The God of our fathers has raised up Jesus, whom you put to death, hanging him on a tree. He whom God has exalted at his right hand as ruler and savior is to bring repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We testify to this. So too does the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right, thank you. Oh, th- this is this is really rich here. They go back without any resistance and... Uh, they get a chance to uh, address a very upset high priest who is perplexed as to why they would disobey his ruling that they should never mention this guy Jesus ever again. He's just perplexed. He's not used to having his edicts challenged by a Judean. And these guys act like he's nothing. And not only that, but he's worried that they are inciting the crowds against them uh, to eventually make them responsible for the execution of Jesus. And, of course, that will be fulfilled, but that's way way down the road. Uh, Revelation 1-7 talks a lot about that, but we won't go there at this time. So they are uh, they're very concerned, and Peter is the chief spokesman, but all the apostles you know, apparently joined in to some extent or another, and said that they were going to obey God rather than men. So again, the, the the kingdom of God is greater than the nations of the earth, just as the prophet Daniel uh, foretold early in the book of Daniel. And here again we see this is so devastating to our dispensational friends. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Now this raised up in the Greek, it's not just talking about resurrection but this is it's well it's talking about really exalting to a high place taking from a low place to a a high place so a lot of the scholars believe this is referring to him taking the throne of David he comes all the way from the the lowness of death the pit of death Hades as it's called in the Hebrew scriptures he goes all the way from that lowness to this position of exaltation. So God exalted him, but you murdered him and cursed him by hanging him on a tree. That was prophesied, of course, to be a great curse. Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. That's from the law of Moses. And then verse 31 continues, Him did God exalt with his right hand to be a ruler and a savior. So how can someone be a ruler if there is no kingdom and of course the dispensationalists try to to uh, worm around this by coming up with multiple kingdoms the kingdom of god or the kingdom of christ but 
the complexity of their view, I mean, no, no two of them can even agree on all of those complicated details. The simple truth in the Bible is that God's eternal purpose was to establish his kingdom in the days of the Roman kings, just as we see uh, in all the prophets, especially in Daniel and Habakkuk, who specifically talk about the kingdom being established exactly when God said it would be established. So he is... He has been exalted by God to be a ruler and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and remission of sins. These are these are two of the promises in Daniel's prophecy of weeks in Daniel chapter nine. The the law of Moses could not remit sins, and the book of Hebrews goes into this topic in great detail. So the putting away of sin is part of the promise of Daniel 9 and of Daniel 12 of what would happen in Israel's last days. And so this is spoken of here in Acts chapter 5 as a past event. So all of those 50% in Tom's church and all of the millions upon millions throughout this country who don't think the kingdom has been established yet and who are just thinking that all this Moral decline is the fulfillment of God's prophecy, and we don't need to worry about it. I mean, they're missing the whole story here of God's eternal purpose to bring forth this special people to be God's people, to be his possession, to be his family, and to rule as princes on the earth. The apostles add to this that they... know that these things are true. They're eyewitnesses of these things. And they claim or reveal also this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which has been with them since the day of Pentecost, which confirms and reveals uh, the truth of all of these actions of God. So that was their answer to, to the Sanhedrin. Now let's go ahead then and read the last, well, I'll, I'll let me offer any comments here before we read the last uh, paragraph of the chapter. I'd just like to reiterate, better for us to obey God than men. Yeah, j- just as true today as it as it was here in Acts chapter 5. All right, well, let's go ahead then and read the last part of chapter 5, please. When the Sanhedrin heard this, They were stung to fury and wanted to kill them. Then a member of the Sanhedrin stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law highly regarded by all the people. He had the accused ordered out of the court for a few minutes and then said to the assembly, Fellow Israelites, think twice about what you are going to do with these men. Not long ago, a certain Sudas came on the scene and tried to pass himself off as someone of importance. About 400 men joined him. However, he was killed, and all those who had been so easily convinced by him were disbanded. In the end, it came to nothing. Next came Judas the Galilean at the time of the census. He too built up quite a following, but likewise died and all his followers were dispersed. The present case is similar. My advice is that you have nothing to do with these men. Let them alone. 
If their purpose or activity is human in its origins, it will destroy itself. If, on the other hand, it comes from God, you will not be able to destroy them without fighting God himself. This speech persuaded them. In spite of it, however, the Sanhedrin called in the apostles and had them whipped. They ordered them not to speak again about the name of Jesus and afterward dismissed them. The apostles, for their part, left the Sanhedrin full of joy that they had been judged worthy of ill treatment for the sake of the name. Day after day, both in the temple and at home, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Messiah. All right, awesome. Thank you. The Sanhedrin, as a group, there were, I'm sure there were exceptions, but they were, they were moved to rage and would have killed them in a heartbeat, again, if it were not for, uh, well, the moderation of Gamaliel there and the fear of the crowd the political realities of trying to rule in the uh, present circumstances uh, prevented them from carrying out the rage that was in their hearts and in their minds at this time. This this Gamaliel, we know, was the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. And we have Jewish writings to this day that go back like to the third century uh, rabbinic writings that really honor Gamaliel as as one of the greatest teachers of the law of this time of the first century and all these kind of cryptic sayings about him a big measure of the glory of Israel passed when when Gamaliel died and so on so he was he was highly respected and he was a he was not like the Sadducees. He was more of a maximist as far as the power of God uh, as opposed to a minimalist. He believed, as we see here in this speech, that God's power didn't require a lot of help, that things would happen according to God's providence just as he intended, and he didn't need a lot of helping hands. So he had uh, much more confidence in the power of God than the Sadducees. And you know, and he he really personified the best traits of Phariseeism. I'm sure he had some flaws and, and and things, but we don't really know much about those. In this case, he he was helping God's purpose here, apparently because his speech is recorded and it resulted in the release of the apostles. This Thutis that he mentions there in verse 36, we don't have any other record of him outside of this account here but he's listed before Judas of Galilee and we do have records of this Judas of Galilee this well this was not the census that took place when Jesus was born this was one that took place I believe in 6 AD when a new governor was installed in Damascus over all of Palestine he ordered a census to determine how much tax should be collected in each of the uh, provinces in his domain and this Judas was really the beginning of the zealot movement and he he made the point that it was not lawful for a Judean to pay tribute of any kind to a foreign government and he drew some followers 
And even though Gamaliel here says that they were all scattered abroad, in reality, this was the beginning of the movement that led to the uh, Jewish war against Rome in A.D. 66. So it, it didn't quite go away as well as Gamaliel perhaps would have thought. But we can assume from the time frame of Judas of Galilee that Thutis was uh, before that, probably after the death of Herod the Great, there, there, there was a great chaos in the land. Herod left a huge power vacuum uh, when he died. And the best guess is that this Thutis was someone that uh, rose up with disgust at Herod's family uh, after Herod uh, died and was able to attract 400 followers here who were all killed and didn't leave any written record other than this account here in the book of Acts. So Gamaliel lists these two incidents to try to persuade his fellow council members that if you leave these men alone, God will overthrow them if they are doing work of human origin, but if their work is of divine origin. And of course, there were many, many signs and proofs, including how they had gotten out of jail without the doors being yeah. open, you see. So he's he's leaving room, you know, to, to believe that their work is of God. And he's warning the council that there is no way that you will be able to overthrow them. He, so Gamaliel here, again, is demonstrating his absolute confidence in the power of God, which is a good trait. And, and he obviously passed this along in, in good measure to his pupil, Saul. And so he was able to persuade them, uh, but they couldn't let these, they were, again, they still had this rage, this fury within them. And so they beat the apostles. We don't know if they were given the maximum sentence of 39 stripes allowed under the law of Moses, or if perhaps they were beaten a lesser amount, because oftentimes someone would die from the 39 stripes. So they may have gone easier on these, but they definitely wanted to inflict pain and suffering on them for the emotional trauma that they had just endured at being insulted and treated like nothing <laughs> by these illiterate men of Galilee. They repeated their charge not to speak in the name of Jesus. And of course, how much confidence could they have had after seeing such defiance? I don't know if they really had much confidence, but of course they had to they had to humor themselves and repeat the charge not to ever mention Jesus again before they let the disciples go. The disciples left out of the council chambers rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And again, we, we think of the name as the authority of God, but I also am seeing more and more that this is also referring to this new family that they've all been adopted into. As the bride of Christ, you see, they take the name of the husband, Christ. They'll later be called Christians later in the book of Acts, but they know that they wear the name of Christ already. And so they are rejoicing that they are suffering dishonor for being in the new family of God. And so they they go out with renewed confidence and daily in the temple and at homes, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus as the Christ. So, I mean, we can see them up there at dawn every morning on the Temple Mount, 
and then in the evenings after the uh, evening prayers and offerings uh, going into homes throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding villages to to do these uh, home studies where they would of course have used the the Hebrew scriptures to edify and and to build up these newly converted Judeans to reveal how all of the Hebrew scriptures point to Jesus as the Christ, which again is the Messiah or the anointed one, which is pointing to his role as king and priest. And I mean, if the kingdom has come with this much power, again, our our friends today who don't think the kingdom has come with power have just completely missed the boat, in my opinion. But what are your thoughts? Well, I agree. Uh, instead of guilt by association, it's righteousness by association. Good in thought. Jesus. Good thoughts. Yeah, yeah, righteousness. That, that's exactly what the gospel is, is righteousness by association with Jesus uh, instead of by good works. So um, next time we'll we'll look at chapter 6 and we'll see how that now things will be, well, in chapter 7, but chapter 6 will set the stage for the commission of Christ to move beyond the first two stages, which were Jerusalem and Judea. This has now been accomplished to great measure, and so in chapter 6, things are going to start changing uh, here, which will lead to the expansion of the war, so to speak, the war against error and death and so on. The front is now going to be expanded on the new fronts in chapter 7, and chapter 6 is going to tell us uh, how that is going to to happen. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks, Mark. That was a terrific lesson today. We appreciate everybody else's input on this, and we'll look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.